Hello and welcome to Meet the Education Researcher. This is a podcast from the Faculty of Education at Monash University. And here we talk with researchers in and around the faculty about their current reading, writing and thinking. So welcome to the second recording in our semi-regular series of Meet the Education Researcher podcasts. My name is Neil Selwyn and I work at the Faculty of Education, Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. So the aim of these recordings is very simple. We're going to spend about 15 minutes getting to know what researchers in and around the faculty are currently up to. So today I'm joined by Rosie Welch, a lecturer in the faculty. Good morning, Rosie. Good morning. So just before we started, I set you a challenge to write your current research biography in 140 characters or less. And you described yourself in two bits. First bit being teacher education, content, knowledge and pedagogy. And then you had a side order of biography, embodiment and well-being. So I guess my first question is... What does that all mean? Yeah, what does that all mean? Well, um, they all relate to each other, but they're also separate um, because the discipline knowledge that informs teacher education, for example, can be from all different curriculum or discipline studies. But um, the background comes from health and physical education as a health and physical education teacher. Those two curriculum areas, health and PE, have been put together and it's been an uneasy relationship having them housed together under one curriculum area because whilst there's some overlap um, between them, particularly in the aspects of physical health, um, as other things like sexuality or drug education um, is very unrelated to um, physical education. So in terms of um, teacher education, the question then becomes how do we work with pre-service teachers um, in these two different disciplinary knowledges that then have a whole host of um, traditions within them? Uh, how do we how do we think about the body and health? So um, in terms of content knowledge and pedagogy, it's the relationship between the teacher and the students or the, the classroom environment and thinking through um, wh- who these people are that come to this classroom environment or whatever the learning space or place is. Um, and so um, for in the discipline area of health and PE, we often know that the, the biographies of the types of students that come into that discipline area often have quite a strong sporting background, for example. So some of the, the background to um, my work in this space has come from, I guess, that that history of um, how do we consider health education when we're working with students from that background and then also comparatively in a generalist space when you've got primary um, health uh, primary generalists that are responsible for the learning area of health and PE what are their biographies and how are they different so I mean as a sociologist I can recognize words like biography and embodiment well-being to me I've always known to be a kind of really flaky area so how do you work with the idea of well-being yeah, well, well-being's um, something that is very much related to health and often they're conflated in terms of the terms or there's poor understandings of them as separate things or how they're related. Um, well-being can relate to quality of life and I think what's interesting um, now is how it's re- um, related to enactments of productivity within society or material cultures or well-being industries is, is a huge industry um, and market. So um, part of my interest is how those types of ways of thinking about health um, and well-being come about in popular culture in public pedagogies and how that informs the biographies like I said of those people that come back to that learning space and the interactions um, the the knowledge of of health and well-being so So moving it completely away from an individual perspective to a kind of macro level yeah that's right yeah and particularly when there's so much information about health and well-being um, within the news feeds of of our environments um, how is it that we actually come to think about it as an area of research and what's Mm. the history of that Um, because a lot of people come in with a lot of assumptions about what health and well-being is yeah yeah we've all done PE (laughs) so I mean all academics are busy people and you seem to be as busy as anyone else in the faculty but what are you actually doing what's keeping you busy at the moment research-wise yeah well research-wise um we're I'm working on a project with 
um, someone at Deakin, Natalie Hendry, we're looking at social media practices of young people, but also experts and some of the ways that, uh, that they think about young people's social media practices and what they need. So, for example, bullying and mental health come up as big ticket sort of um, catchphrases when it comes to young people and online practices. We're interested in developing skills and knowledge with teachers and young people from media studies and communications to bring that disciplinary knowledge um, across to health education. So I'm always really interested when people talk about digital media and social media. My, my key question is what's new there? So is there anything new to, as you say, the discourses on social media as opposed to what people were talking about before social media came along? Um, I think that, the, no, I think there's some similarities theoretically across, um, I think in the, in the field of health and PE, Jan Wright wrote a great paper on um, like media studies and media analysis, particularly in relation to sports media texts. And um, I think those things were true of sports media texts as, as, as they're reproduced in the online digital environment um, and social media practices. There's, um, I mean, I'm quite new to the area. I come more from the health education background and mm. that's why I'm collaborating with Natalie because she comes more from the communication media background. But what's new about the online um, is the cross-postings, the participation, um, the multiplicity of messages, the word echo chamber gets used, whether that's that's a helpful term or not. But, um, are, you know, it's quite interesting to ask questions about what are the um, possibilities and what's happening on these newer um, digital web 2.0 social media. Yeah, yeah. Well, that sounds like that's going to keep you busy for the next 10 years. <laughs> yeah. Have you got anything exciting coming up on the horizon? I mean, any kind of bids that you're cooking up, proposals, just conferences that you're looking forward to? August, September, I'm going over to Denmark for the European Educational Association oh, yeah, yeah. conference. Yeah, working with, um, I'm lucky to be on a symposium with Dina Leahy and Jan Wright and um, some international people talking about food pedagogies particularly and uh, straight after I'm going over to Athens for the European Sociological Association and I'm presenting a paper on um, poetic vignettes as a um, way of thinking about health and embodiment um, with pre-service teachers so that came out of a thesis chapter. Excellent I've been to the sociology conference before I've not been to the education conference have you done that before? No not the European one I'm a a usual um, attendee of the AARE Australian. Mm. I hear really good things about it, but I think more people should be encouraged to go to that. It's really interesting. So, I mean, slowing down for a second, I'm always really fascinated by what makes academics tick, what you're actually taking in as well as what you're producing. So, I mean, just to kind of go back about 10 steps, are you, have you, what are you reading at the moment? Are you, or who are you reading or what are you reading that's actually kind of getting you excited? Um, well, it's pretty eclectic mix. It's sort of like a paper that someone sends you or mm. you get inspired by something that you see on a Twitter conversation. Um, so, uh, But then there's also some more structured reading, which I've tried to protect, I suppose, because my, my life's been very much teaching orientated. So you're, you're skimming papers that you're familiar with that students are supposed to read in your units. That kind of forms yep. a lot of your <laughs> daily um, routines. I think they and, call it power power browsing as opposed yeah, to skimming. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, power browsing. I like that. sounds um, more thorough and rigorous than skimming. Um, so I've, uh, with a reading group um, on materialisms, I suppose it's an emerging, you know, it's called, been, been called a turn um, in, in theoretical usage and it's kind of groundswell of late. The reading group around materialisms has been to better understand that, how it's used and how it can be applied methodologically um, in the field of education. So Brian Mazumi's book, The Politics of Effect, we've been working through the chapters which are interviews um, and that's been really interesting to think about what's often referred to as effective or 
relational pedagogies, what happens in the interactions. And I find that, yeah, that a really helpful space to talk um, with other people that are doing research and to kind of challenge your thinking and your ideas and how that relates to um, a previous trajectory of like strong post-structural thesis, which I was working with. So um, that was more around power relations and discourses and how these two kind of fields can come together if they can, what's particularly new about it or what's not. And How's that reading group gone? Because I've always found Masumi really heavy weather, apart from that book, the <laughs> one you've mentioned, because it's interviews, I think it's easier mm. to understand, but. Yeah, the reading group, it's its a challenge. There's quite a broad range of people and people zoom in as well online, which is an interesting kind of mechanism for how that fl- the, the conversation flows. Like it can be quite um, stunted or you can miss things. But um, it's, uh, Masumi, I think the interviews in the politics of effect are fairly, um, because it's an interview style, mm. it's not an edited and carefully um you know, constructed manuscript. It's, um, it's. I think it's a more accessible way to uh, to do it. And yeah, one of the yeah. reasons why we um, decided on the book was because each interview chapter is different, so you can come in and out of it. Each of the chapters without having necessarily read the previous ones. I, I, I'm thinking about well-being. I just read an interesting article in Social Science and Medicine by Sandra Carlyle, um, Gregor Henderson and Phil Hanlon talking about, um, I suppose, like I was before, the well-being and how it's been used for productive purposes um, in materialist kind mm. of cultures. Um, I find Maria Tambuku's work, I read quite a lot of her papers and when she, she brings out a lot of... Um, current stuff um, but still with the theme of feminism and looking at epistolary narratives or in the case of a paper I just read read, which was reassembling documents of life in the archive she talks about um, how actual archives define what sorts of knowledges we have of the past and so she she makes the argument to become more sensitive to life of the documents of life um, that we work with so um yeah, I, f- I find her work useful because she brings together lines of flight and sort of Deleuzian mm. concepts, but also um, does that well with bringing together Foucault. So you're digging work. deep into humanities, social sciences, philosophy, and then just applying them to education. I say then just applying them to education, <laughs> yeah. but I mean, and that's a really kind of cluey trick. Mm. Uh, I think I've tried to do that in my own research as well. Look more broadly. Yeah, the, yeah. The really deep thinking, I think, is not necessarily in education. No, I think um, you have to really um, be proactive in doing that kind of reading. And, and this is a real challenge I've had, particularly this, this last year and a bit that I've been at Monash because my heavy teaching load has meant that I'm involved at the, the pedagogical mm. interface, which is really exciting because the final chapter of my thesis um, was about that. That's what it comes to, you know, so what? Now you're actually having to do it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. if you're, um, you know, you, you need to have some communication skills if you're going to be in front of a class, very, you know, skills-based thing. Um, that aren't necessarily related to um, the skill of reading and, and scholarship. Um, yeah, there's this kind of chasm at times between these worlds of th- that are operating and that can be really nice when you make bridges between them. Yeah, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. It can be really satisfying when students really appreciate reading stuff that's not yeah. necessarily in their wheelhouse. Mm. So, I mean, moving back to the stuff that you produce, I guess your output, I mean, what are you writing at the moment? Um, so that um, paper for the European Sociological Association on poetic vignettes, um, using a methodology that's not just necessarily writing poetry for effective or kind of personal catharsis. It's not that sort of a paper. Mm. It's actually looking at um, interviews with 32 people and it came out of a discourse analysis of those interviews for meanings of health, so how people talk about health, and had already written a paper on that 
but this paper is actually shortening interview text. So you've got an hour or an hour and a half interview and um, particularly working with students in the classroom, they don't necessarily want to read all of that you know, um, mm. quoted text that you've pulled out from inter- interview. What I found was creating a, a poetic transcript, which is actually using verbatim quotes from the one and a half hour interview, but constructing um, an archetype, if you like, that's characteristic of the other participants in the in the of the interviews. Then you can get a really rich kind of um, short and almost like sort of punchy read for students. And I found that is useful to mm. k- kind of make a theoretical point quite quickly when you've got limited time. So you can read across three different positions or three different archetypes and kind of see. Uh, we talk with students about how they see themselves in those and, and how they relate to them or agree or disagree and it's it's quite a u- useful pedagogical tool. Yeah, so I'm yeah. really like trying to um, work in that space. Yeah, I suppose there's a politics to the work in that you're trying to take the theory and some of the critiques because, you know, after doing critique for so long, mm. you then have to act. You start, you have to do something. You have to say something in front of a class or you have to design an what activity. You said before, so what? You have to come <laughs> yeah. up with that. There's some really interesting work using graphic novels um, and other forms of, uh, yeah, as you say, re-representing mm. long texts in very short, snappy ways. Yeah. So, I mean, without putting too much of a jinx on it, have you got any ideas where you might be putting that to publish after ESA? Yeah, um, probably qualitative inquiry. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's what I'm, I'm aiming for. And there's one other paper working on um, in indigenising um, food education through health and um, some work we did in teacher ed with students going to the Cranbourne Gardens and they were um, using sensory aspects of grinding up wattle seeds or smelling lemon myrtle and thinking about um, foods and where they come from. And, and a lot of the students hadn't thought about food in that way before or its relationship to health. So, mm. um we're we're working on that as well. All the stuff you've talked about doesn't lend itself to 7,000 word journal articles. <laughs> they lend themselves to poems or to kind of more, as you say, there's multimodal ways of actually kind of writing, which mm. is always a challenge. Because yeah, yeah. You still have to write those. And then things. who reads those when they, they do get published is uh, the next. <laughs> I know. Well, we've, we haven't got much time left. I'd love to talk for about 10 hours about who actually reads academic work. <laughs> so, I mean, just looking forward to the to the future future. I mean, is there anything that's cooking in the back of your mind, ideas for big projects? I mean, have you got a dream ARC that you might be putting together? What, what would you like to be doing in five years' time? Um, in five years' time, I think it would be really great to have um, be involved in a collaborative research centre that's doing really innovative, interesting things in health and everyday life for youth, young people and also teacher ed um, and thinking about health in a way that's more holistic than necessarily biopedagogies or monitoring and surveillance, all of the quantified self stuff that's been um, analysed. Deborah Lupton's done some good work on that. But... Um, yeah, so thinking about health in more complex ways and the interdisciplinary links between health and other areas. No, I mean, inter- interdisciplinary research is clearly the future and the methods that you've talked about and the theories that you're using are really good ways of bridging as well. So, yeah, I'm sure that's going to be really, really fruitful for the next five years. I mean, finally, I've always got one eye on the future and I'm really worried about where education research is heading. Mm. So I'm always after kind of tips or intelligence. I mean, have you got any decent idea about where this is all where this is all heading. <laughs> Any upcoming problems that you think we should be bracing ourselves for? Um, well, I think the future is always in the present, actually. And I think um, educational freedom or whatever, it, you know, it happens in the present moment. And that's where that we, you come back to the relationality, theoretical stuff that's been done in materialisms. Um, 
But yeah, having said that, there's always there's always some elements of predictability or um, history that's informing what's perhaps going to happen in the future. I think there is. I mean, I was just listening to um, Michael Mosley, who's a commentator that's on SBS quite frequently, and he has done um, a range of different programs. He's got uh, one at the moment called Trust Me, I'm a Doctor. But um, that points to me, like when you start to see these things come up in popular culture spaces, um, where his one on food, for example, they were going to Bolivia and looking at yogurt making practices that are quite ancient and then also lay, overlaying that with some scientific um, methods and knowledge in, in, a, in a TV program. I think that's a really uh, new example of some of this interdisciplinary work happening more in the, the public pedagogies or yeah popular yeah. uptake so I think I think there's going to be more of that so it'll be interesting then to see um, what effects that has for how people start to change and shift. Yeah and if there's one thing education researchers and academics can do is to give a kind of historical sense and to kind of slow the debate down and kind of remind people about what they're yeah. not talking about as well. Well that's been really really interesting thanks ever so much for your time.